it's kind of a distraction to think about buy, sell, buy, sell, own. We own investments. When should we own more and when should we own less? And that's, I think that's a rather easy question to answer. We should own more when the environment is hospitable and prices are low. And we should own less when the environment is precarious and prices are high. Welcome to the sixth live webcast in our series by Investec Wealth and Investment, Markets and Investing in Times of COVID-19. Our last webcast was viewed by clients and colleagues across the globe, so welcome everyone, wherever you are. I'm Max Richardson, Senior Investment Director at Investec Wealth and Investment in London. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital, who joins me for a fireside chat. Howard is highly renowned as a co-founder of Oak Tree Capital, author of three books, including The Most Important Thing and Mastering the Market Cycle. But he's probably best known for the investment memos he has published since 1990. In the last few webcasts, we've chatted to investment strategists, economists, political analysts, psychologists, and even those right at the coalface, such as bloggers from Italy, professors from the WHO, and recovered patients to COVID-19. Today, I hope to focus on the current crisis, unique properties, but also its similarities in an investing sense to previous crises, particularly in relation to investor behaviour, a topic close to Howard's heart. In these out-of-the-ordinary times, Investec looks to partner with our clients and to help you navigate a course to calmer waters. We do this by bringing together our own internal knowledge with external experts in their fields. Welcome, Howard. Thank you very much, Max. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, it's great that despite being 5,000 miles and eight time zones apart, we can still hold this fireside chat, thanks to modern technology. Um, and you've clearly been very busy because as well as running Oak Tree, you've wrote four memos in the month of March, um, which I think is one more than you wrote in the entirety of, of 2019. Um, today, I'd like to cover three broad topic areas, including cycles, risk, and the future post-pandemic, as well as posing a couple of questions from our audience too. But before we start, I wondered whether we might, um, you might be able to let me know how you're finding working from home. Sure, well, first of all, uh, my home is in New York. Um, while Oak Tree is headquartered in Los Angeles, I moved to New York in 2013 uh, because my kids did, and uh, I wanted to chase them. and. Uh, since uh, my wife and I moved there, they both got married and they both had children. So I think it was a successful plan. Um, on March 11th, we were scheduled to have our biannual uh, client conference in Los Angeles. Uh, my wife and I flew out to Los Angeles on March 6th, but we canceled the conference. Um, we live streamed it instead of holding it live for clients um, on the 11th. Um, and on the 11th after lunch, I went home uh, and uh, I've been here ever since to my home in Beverly Hills, that is. Uh, so uh, we just passed uh, five weeks of uh, lockup. And uh, the good news is that on the 13th, my son and his uh, wife and uh, baby joined us in uh, Beverly Hills. So it's great to have the company. And uh, we're faring well. Um, 
as as well as one can under these circumstances. Um, uh, and I'm quite busy because my tasks include, of course, uh, being up to date uh, on events, uh, writing the memos, as you describe, at an unusual uh, clip, and also uh, speaking with uh, clients. You know, where uh, I think the the most important thing right now, of course, is to a uh, not sell when the market is uh, during a downdraft, and also uh, put some money to work. So we're uh, mobilizing for that, speaking with clients, and that uh, that's taking lots of time. But happily, I mean, that's my job. Uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, Max, uh, where would we be without work? Uh, you know, uh, work has kept us busy uh, and uh, kept the times interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's certainly true. We're, we're adapting well here as well, as, and including looking after our children too, which is a, a new and, uh, um, and great experience, actually. We're, 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 it's challenging, but we're enjoying it. Um, a bit later, we're going to talk about human, uh, how human behavior, business and markets might change as a result of the crisis. Um, but I'm also interested to know what might have stayed the same. Have you detected a difference in the market's psychology during this crisis compared to previous crises, uh, like 2008? Are our investors acting in a very similar fashion? Have you noticed any changes in you in yourself too? Uh, let me deal first with your last question. I don't think I've changed. Uh, you know, I've been through a lot of these cycles. I've been, I'm now 51 years into the investment business, and I've seen a number of major cycles, uh, three in particular uh, debt crises. This is the fourth. And uh, so I think that uh, I've learned to, uh, to understand them sufficiently that I don't uh, uh, fly off the handle anymore. Um, you asked how it's the same and how it's different. And of course, that's a very interesting question. Uh, Mark Twain, the American humorist, is supposed to have said that uh, history does not repeat, but it does rhyme. And uh, you mentioned that in 2018, I put out a book called Mastering the Market Cycle, uh, still for sale, I might add, uh, any amount anybody would like to buy. Um, and you know, I think that studying and understanding cycles is is probably the single thing we can do to uh, best get the odds on our side. And that is the um, the subtitle of the book, Getting the Odds on Your Side. We can't ever, as investors, get to the point where we're sure such and such is going to happen or we're sure such and such is going to work. But we can get to a point with where the odds are on our side. And I think that understanding cycles is the most important element in that. Okay, so um, what are the elements that rhyme from one cycle to the next? Well, first of all, I think uh, the causes. Uh, uh, and in the investment world, uh, when we have um, too much willingness to bear risk, um, too much optimism with regard to the future um, and too much money in the hands of investors and too much eagerness to put it to work, then I think eventually uh, markets will go too far to the upside and 
you know, uh, a, a positive market will turn into a bull market and a bull market will turn into uh, a, a market which is too high and a market which is too high eventually will turn into a bubble. And I think that in the last few years, we have had those things. We've had too much optimism, too much willingness to bear risk, uh, and too much money in investors' hands and too much eagerness to put it to work. The main reason for all of these things is the low level of interest rates. And of course, interest rates, uh, certainly in the US, but in most, well, I, I, almost every place, interest rates have been the lowest in history. And in Europe and Japan, uh, at the government level, negative. We've never seen that before. So we had very low interest rates. And so we had people uh, willing to do risky things in order to make good returns in a low return world. That's number one. And these things caused the market to appreciate. We had the longest bull market in history uh, reaching into its 11th year. Uh, the, the low of the S&P in the global financial crisis was reached March 9th, 9th 2009. So we came within 20 days of uh, making it 11 years. Uh, this mar this, uh, this S&P peaked out at uh, September, uh, February the 19th. Okay, so that's the backdrop. Uh, we had a very strong market for the reasons that I described, and the up cycle was very powerful and, and went on long. Now, the interesting thing is I don't describe this cycle as having reached a bubble. Valuations were not highly excessive, uh, behavior was not crazy, and in particular, a bubble is characterized by hearing people say, there's no price too high. Whether it be internet stocks or, or, or the price of a home, uh, we heard in past uh, cycles, no price too high. We didn't hear that this time, and I didn't think we were in bubble territory, but I thought we were high enough so that Oak Tree was behaving in a in an unusually risk-averse fashion. We always take a cautious approach to our risky asset classes. We only invest in risky asset classes. Uh, we don't invest in treasuries or gilt-edge uh, stocks and so forth. Uh, we, we, we take risk to make money, but, and, but we take a cautious approach. And in the last several years, we've taken an unusually cautious approach, even for us. Okay, now uh, let's, uh, let's run that forward. Uh, in the last two months, of course, we've had unusual developments. Now, we had the arrival of the coronavirus, and this was not a cyclical event. This was a sunspot type event, a random event uh, thrown in by the gods or the fates or whatever you want to see into this normal cyclical experience. Um, and of course, uh, from February 19th, the high of the S&P at about 3380 uh, or something, um, the market went down 34% in uh, five weeks. And uh, that was the fastest trip to a decline that low in history. And, um, uh, you know, we, we had... Uh, some panicky behavior on the part of investors. When investors switch, I always say that in the real world, things fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. 
but in the investment world, we go from flawless to hopeless. <clears throat> and when investors flip from being optimistic to being pessimistic and fatalistic and suicidal, then we get big declines in prices and we get bargains to buy. Yeah, I think the point you've made there about the, and you refer to this concept of the pendulum of psychology right. a lot, and, 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 and I've started to refer to it as well when I talk to clients, and, and we, we weren't at the stage where the pendulum was really at the euphoric stage. You know, taxi drivers weren't giving you stock tips, people weren't kind of um, being, you know, believing the belief system wasn't that markets would go up forever. In fact, people had been quite cautious for 10 years despite being a bull market. And then, of course, the virus happened and the economy stopped. Um, and so we had a catalyst for a bear market that, that was an exogenous shock, I guess. Is, is, is uh, yeah, I think, you know, the, the expression that we used to young, use when I was young uh, was that the market was climbing a wall of worry. Hmm. There were things to worry about, uh, like, uh, well, let's say uh, we'll use the, the rubric uh, uh, global leadership, political leadership. Um, also, uh, relations with the Chinese um, and uh, things of that nature. Um, and the market rose anyway. And when the market rises despite concern, that's called climbing a wall of worry. And that's viewed to be healthy as opposed to a parabolic ascent, which is, uh, has the potential to be unhealthy. So you're, you're right to say uh, that it the environment was not euphoric. So, so that, that brings us quite neatly on to, the, to, the, to my next question. And, and, and we, you've written and there's been lots also written about um, how difficult it is to call the bottom of the market. Um, and, when, and when the right time to buy is, is it, is it better to write buy before or when you know very little or buy after the bottom when perhaps you might pay more but you have some more information. So what strategy would you advise for investors trying to allocate capital when faced with a large decline in asset prices such as we've seen? Right. Um, you know, I wrote a memo, one of those ones you referred to, and the title was Calibrating. And I think that it's all a matter of calibration. And when I go on TV, they try to get me to say buy or sell, in or out. And it's not that black and white. Um, when should you own more and when should you own less? That's the question. By the way, it's, it's kind of a distraction to think about buy, sell, buy, sell. Own. We own investments. When should we own more and when should we own less? And that's, I think that's a rather easy question to answer. We should own more when the environment is hospitable, and I'll define that in a minute, and prices are low. And we should own less when the environment is precarious and prices are high. Again, this is all discussed in the book about the, the cycle. But what does it mean for the, Michael, for the market to be precarious? Well, I described it a bit ago. I said it, 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 it occurs when investors are optimistic and there's not much risk aversion and there's a lot of money and a lot of eagerness to put it to work. Um, so when these things are true, then everything else being equal, it's likely that asset prices will be high 
relative to asset values. That's really the key determinant. Where does the price of what you're considering holding stand relative to its intrinsic value? And uh, so that, and that is determined by factors like the ones I mentioned. Let's simplify it. The more optimistic people are, the higher the price is likely to be relative to its intrinsic value, period. And you want to buy when the price is low relative to the intrinsic value, or perhaps uh, uh, doesn't reflect all the merits of the intrinsic value. And you don't want to hold that much. Maybe you even want to sell when the price is very high relative to the intrinsic value. So, you know, my point is that in the middle of March, we saw a real panic. And, um, and Oak Tree invested aggressively in the things we buy, which are mostly credit instruments, uh, especially from March 9th, when the panic, I would say, set in until March 23rd, when it abated, thanks to the actions of the government. Things went on sale. Think of it as just going to your local department store. And when things go on sale, you, you, you should buy more. Um, and we did. And uh, so, you know, that, and that's what we have done in past crises. And that's what we try to do. That's our job is to own more when they're on sale. And uh, then the government came out uh, and the news started to filter out around March 23rd about what the government and Fed of, of the U.S. would do. And interestingly, here we are in this terrible environment, this, this terrible uh, health pandemic. And from March 24 to 26, those three days were the highest returning three days in the last 80 plus years in the stock market, going back to the 1930s and the depression. Um, and uh, so you, you may say that it was a response to the government programs. You may say that it was a relief rally. Um, and the, the market rose. Uh, the Dow was up 19.8%, I think, and the S&P 17.6. Um, and so, well, guess what? After a rise of that proportion, and then it has continued higher, and the S&P, which was up 17.6 in those three days, is now up about 26% or so. Um, from the low of March 23rd. And that's probably the quickest uh, trip into bull market territory in history. Bull market defined as a period when the market's been up 20% without a decline. Um, so very simple. Things aren't as cheap anymore. They're not on sale to the same extent. You shouldn't own as many. Now, when I say you should own more, you should own less, most people don't want to jump around from day to day. Most people shouldn't be trading daily in, out, more, less. But the point is, uh, we had a major move down. Things were put on sale. Oak Tree bought. We had a, a, a not a corresponding move up, but a, a strong move up. And we, we stopped buying as much because we couldn't get bargains of the same uh, uh, magnitude. And uh, so we, we first we thought the risk was great in past years and we were defensive. Then people panicked over the exposure of the risk and we bought and then people got more comfortable and are buying slowed. Now that's, that's the way I think about calibrating. 
Thank you. That's that's that, that's very useful, and it, it's it's an interesting um, uh, challenge because uh, markets, bear markets, usually test the lows. There's there's normally a, a rally, and you said this in calibrating. Actually, you you put the numbers there that showed that um, over the last I think eighty years or so. Um, that, that when we've seen a decline as we've seen there tends to be a rally but then the market might test it once maybe twice maybe three times and, and I think that I think the figure max was a uh, nine times out of ten right. um, and if you look at the last two uh, crises the uh, bursting of the TMT tech media telecom bubble in 2000 and the global financial crisis in 2008 uh, each of the each of the stock market declines you saw a big drop, a rally, another big drop, a rally, and another big drop before we reached the bottom. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, based on history, now there are no rules that say history has to apply, but based on history, the fact that we had a 34% decline uh, of the S&P from uh, February 2019th to March 23rd, and then a 26% gain since then, Based on history, we would expect that there would be uh, another testing uh, of the lows, and maybe two. The other thing I mentioned in, in that memo was that in, uh, in the bursting of the TMT bubble, it took seven years to get back to the stock market high of 2000. And it took, in the global financial crisis aftermath, it took five and a half years to get back to the uh, high of the stock market in 2007. Hmm. If the stock, if the stock market in the states rose another 15 percent, we would be back to the 2019 high. Do we, do we really think that it's appropriate for the stock market in the U.S. to be back at its highs after two months or three months? And despite this. Uh, this uh, uh, virus uh, pandemic. And it, it, to me, it seems uh, illogical. Yeah, uh, and actually, if you go back to the 30s, it took even longer for markets to recover the, the, right. the, the absolute um, magnitude of the fall. Uh, and that brings me quite neatly on, because I think one of the things that um, is, is, is slightly different this time, and I'm gonna reference one of your memos from last year, which was called, This Time It's Different, um, is the huge stimulus we've seen from central banks and from governments as well. Now, we saw that in 2009, but actually it was quite late in the context of the crisis, of length of the crisis. Um, in that memo last year, you talked about government deficits and quantitative easing by central banks. Um, because markets are made up of people, and people like stories or narratives to help them navigate uncertainty, the market then for 10 years bought into a narrative that central banks have your back, that when economies or markets dip, the Fed or the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan would step in to provide stability. And that's clearly been true in this crisis too, where we've seen an unprecedented commitment to the economy by governments and central bankers. But what do you think the end game there is and what happens when that narrative changes as often happens in times of crisis? Right. Great question, Max. Um, and uh, uh, number one, history does not repeat exactly, as we know. Number two, uh, people tend, tend to learn. So one of the reasons that we had the Great Depression in the 30s 
uh, was that uh, the government practiced austerity and I believe raised taxes and, and did not uh, increase the money supply. We learned from that and we are very fortunate that we had Ben Bernanke uh, at heading the Fed uh, in at the time of the global financial crisis and he did not repeat those mistakes. In fact, he went on to uh, to work out the programs that the Fed in installed and to supply liquidity. And that's why we came out of the global financial crisis as well as we did. And, and the states came out quite well and better than any other country, I might add. Um, as you point out, this time, all the things that were worked out over a course of months in the global financial crisis were activated in a matter of weeks uh, in the uh, in the coronavirus incident. So yes, we, we, we went to work much faster. We installed the programs right away. We installed them at a uh, mind-blowing magnitude. And, uh, you know, uh, Jay Powell, the head of the Fed, said, "Our we are not going to run out of ammunition. And he indicated that that his appetite to, to be activist was limited. Now, the question is whether there are any negative ramifications. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly the Fed has the ability and the Treasury have the ability to send every American a check to make up for the lost wages of every worker and the lost revenues of every business. They can do that. You know, our, our, uh, our GDP is 20 plus trillion a year. So all they had to do is write out five trillion of checks and they could simulate the operation of the economy. But is that okay? Number one, we need the, we don't actually just need the economic activity. We need the product. We need the things that people make, the services and goods they provide. And just sending checks would not uh, handle that. And number two, uh, are there, is there a downside to the government writing checks to that de degree and running deficits and, and running up debts uh, as a result. Uh, in the memo, it's different this time, I talked about modern monetary theory, which is a new theory abroad, um, which basically says that there's, there's no consequences. You can, you can run up as much deficit and as much debt as you want if you use the money for productive purposes. Um, that's their theory. And, uh, we're seeing it in action. Now, we're not seeing it in action because people adopted the theory. We're seeing it in action because the Fed and Treasury and the politicians decided that we needed maximum stimulus. But the result will be the same. Um, you know, Keynes, who's accused of having been very liberal and, and uh, advocating deficits, we, that's what we, we, we use the word Keynesian when we talk about the voluntary incurring of deficits. Keynes said that in times of weakness, when the when the economy is not producing enough jobs, we should um, run deficits to stimulate the economy and put money in circulation. And then when the economy comes back and is in prosperity, we should run surpluses and we should use the surpluses to pay down the deficits. Well, they forgot the surplus part. Now, no politician stands for surpluses. Everybody wants to just spend money. And as a consequence in the States, uh, this year, we were heading for a trillion-dollar deficit in prosperity, which Keynes would uh, f fly off the handle at. Well, now, with all these programs, 
the, the deficit is probably going to be four trillion, uh, closer to four trillion than one. Uh, and nobody seems to care. Or, well, I shouldn't say that they care, but everybody views it as necessary. And I think it is. The point is, we'll see later the consequences. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting, very interesting experiment, and 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 one that um, that that future generations will will reflect on. I'm sure. Um, I want to move on to, to risk now because this is this is just you know fascinating. Well, it sounds pretty dry actually as a subject, but it is actually fascinating because people view risk in totally different ways. Now, you you studied at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business in the late 1960s. Um, which was which was probably a, a great time to be there because you were in the vanguard of classes that were taught um, many of the the the, the economic theories and um, and tools that um, we use today to manage portfolios and to think about things like risk and diversification. Um, the investment industry and academia like to define risk as volatility of returns, so how smooth or not returns tend to be over time. And it seems clear that this crisis has highlighted a number of other risks that we investors should, as investors should be aware of. Perhaps you can talk about how your thinking about risk has changed over time, and particularly in the last month or so. Well, you know, uh, Max, I wrote two memos on the subject, one called Risk, aptly titled, I thought, in 2006, and one called Risk Revisited, and then Risk Revisited 14, I think it was, and then Risk Revisited again in 15. So if people want to uh, catch my uh, thinking on risk, they should read the, the last one, Risk Revisited again. And I think that risk is not volatility. Risk is the probability of having a bad thing happen. And for most investors, that means the probability of permanently losing money. And if we are, if we have, if we have invested within our financial resources, not exceeded our financial resources. And if we have the emotional ability to hold on, even when things get choppy, then, then volatility or instability is not our enemy. Uh, uh, our enemy is losing money. And uh, of course, when volatility hits and prices drop, it's never clear whether that's a downward fluctuation, temporary in nature, or a permanent loss of money. And it's, it's our job to try to figure out which is which. Um, but for the most part, um, when people turn pessimistic and risk aversion soars and prices collapse in these crises that I mentioned having lived through, that's a reduction of risk, you see? The, the, the S&P the went from 3,300 to 2,300. And the average investor says, oh, the market is so much riskier today. Well, I think the market is so much less risky. It's so much less risky to hold it when it's at 2,300 than it was to hold it at 3,300. At and, um, you know, I, I have uh, experience and maybe uh, enough cold-bloodedness uh, to get excited and feel positive when prices drop. Uh, most investors, of course, do the opposite and panic out. Buffett says, I like hamburgers, and when hamburgers go on sale, I eat more hamburgers. And I feel the same. And when, when investments go on sale, 
I want to own more of them, not less. So now your question was about risk this time. I think this time was the greatest example of an exogenous factor at work. The, the, uh, the coronavirus is not a financial uh, uh, element, and uh, certainly it was unpredictable. And you, 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 nobody would say, well, that, that guy was dumb. He didn't anticipate the coronavirus. Uh, you know, very few did. Gates, of course, warned about virus and many scientists, but of course nobody identified the coronavirus or said it was gonna happen in the first quarter of 2020. Generalized warning is better than none, but it wouldn't have helped you much in the market. Um, uh, so is it, what's the, what's the import of the fact that we couldn't expect to identify the coronavirus in advance? I, about 2001, I wrote a memo called, You Can't Predict, You Can Prepare. And I heard this on TV during a football game. This was the, the advertising slogan of an insurance company. I think it was the Mass Mutual Insurance Company. And I thought it was brilliant. Now, superficially, it sounds dumb. You can't predict, you can prepare. How can you prepare for something you can't predict? But I think it's an essential uh, insight, even when you can't predict the thing that is gonna affect the world, you can prepare for, for the arrival of risky elements. And when do you have to prepare? You have to prepare when the cycle is not on your side. And as I said before, when investors are optimistic and risk aversion is at a low and investors have a lot of money and investors are eager to put it to work, and as a consequence, uh, uh, asset prices are high, this is the time to prepare for a worsening of the environment, even though you can't predict what's gonna make it happen. And to me, this, this uh, purported oxymoron, you can't predict, you can't prepare, makes perfect sense. Uh, and uh, so the point is, as I mentioned, we were defensive in recent years, our defensiveness allowed us to be prepared for an event that we did not predict. And now that uh, the virus is here, and now that asset prices are lower, especially in our area of credit, um, uh, we feel we were prepared, and now we're swinging more into action of, of uh, investing. Now is a good time, I think, to talk about the future. Um, because a lot's being written and talked about what the impact of this experience might be uh, in many different regards. But I want to focus on, on two things. Firstly, on the, sort of the human behavioral perspective and also from an economic perspective, both of which are linked because human behavior shapes economies clearly. But um, how, do you, how do you feel about the future? What are your, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, Max, let me just add, to, you said the two are connected, uh, human psychology and, and the economy. Uh, actually, if you think about it, they're one and the same. Because what is an economy? It's a group of people who get together and interact uh, on, in economic transactions. 
And the markets, there, there's nothing to the market or to the economy other than people. And people make individual decisions and their collective decisions uh, move the market and the economy. Um, so, you know, the interesting question is, where are we going to be in the future? As you know, my last memo, April 14th, was entitled Knowledge of the Future. And uh, I like oxymorons, and I think that's an oxymoron, because we don't know anything about the future. Uh, we live normally by understanding the past and extrapolating it into the future. Uh, but it doesn't always apply. Um, and in this case, we've had unique events. We've had one of the greatest pandemics in history, one of the worst economies in history, the biggest uh, stimulus package in history, the biggest price decline of oil prices in history. So if, if, you, if, if you have all these superlatives and you've never seen anything like this before, uh, one of the things I say is if you, can't, if you haven't seen something before, you can't say you know how it's going to turn out. And I think that's true of, of where we stand today. Of, but of course, we have to uh, hypothesize about the future, and I'm willing to do that. Um, uh, I believe that when this is over, when we have uh, testing for immunity uh, and testing for the disease, and when we have vaccine and the vaccine works and, and uh, it can prevent people from getting um, the uh, disease and uh, it prevents it from being handed on, um, I think things will go largely back to normal. Now, one of the characteristics of these crises that I've been through is people say, oh, life has changed forever. Uh, but one of my heroes, John Kenneth Galbraith, says that one of the outstanding characteristics of the financial markets is shortness of memory. And, you know, people say, that's it. I'll never take risk again. I'll never go into the market again. It's just the way to lose money. When the market's been up a few years and people look around and see uh, their friends make money, uh, they tend to go back into the market and take risk again. Likewise, in most ways, I think our behavior will revert to what it was. Um, it, it, right now, it, it may be hard for some people to believe they'll ever get on a plane again, or stay in a hotel again, or take a cruise again, or go to a sporting event, or a concert, or a movie, and uh, eat in a restaurant, and, and so forth. But they will. And, you know, the question is how long it'll take to come back. And the game I play with myself is I, I think about different industries and I say, okay, two years from now, April of 2022, uh, what'll be going on, uh, for example, in uh, hotels? And in hotels, two years from now, assuming that, that the virus is under control and we have an effective vaccine, I think that... Um, you know, business travel will be 90% uh, back to where it was in 2019, and holiday travel will be 70 or 80%. Now, there'll be some people who want to be overcautious and don't go back, but, but I think most will. Um, uh, you might think that, oh, you know, never, nobody's ever going to step foot on a cruise ship again, because those, we have the image of those cruise ships that were caught offshore and people sickening, uh, and so forth. No port would take them. But the truth is that the cruise ship companies will uh, offer 50% off sales and free drinks and people will go back. Um, but So I would think that in 2022, 60% uh, of the business that was done in 19 will be done again. So in some cases, 
a lot, in some cases, still uh, having a, an after effect. The important question would be something like, um, like office space. We're all working from home. We're getting our work done. Uh, I don't think it's as, as enjoyable as interacting with my colleagues. And I don't think it's quite as creative because I think when we sit in a room together and, and uh, the American term is spitball, uh, we throw ideas back and forth. I think we, we create more. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the companies are going to see that people worked okay from home and maybe they'll say, okay, you group over there, you come in half the week, that other group, they come in the other half of the week. So we only need half the office space. And, um, you know, I, it may be a while before the, before people get as sanguine about the outlook for commercial real estate. Um, now, when you talk about commercial real estate, you want to include re retail and retail looks like it's in a downdraft um, that'll never be uh, erased. It, uh, the, the occupancy of retail space was already in decline and the malls were showing declining custom. Uh, and this, of course, brought it to zero. And, and so you, you have a, um, an exacerbating exogenous factor at a time of, uh, of declining systemic uh, growth. And it, it's going to be tough for retail real estate. Yeah, I think that's that, that's true. There's there's there are some industries clearly that were already in decline, and and one of the things that recessions and crises do is to accelerate existing trends. So, I, yeah, I, I would I would um, I would tend to agree with that, and we shouldn't underestimate the power of free drinks on cruises either. So, so that could be something that pulls people back to the sea. Right. Um, I'm going to move on now to a couple of questions from our audience, uh, if that's okay. Beginning yes. with a question from Dave Murray, who asks. Do you buy the apparent dislocation between financial markets, especially equities, and the deep crisis fundamentals? Even though we've seen extraordinary pump priming by central banks and governments, is it credible and sustainable that we will have had one of the shortest bear equity markets? I think this is something that we've you know, partly, partly talked talk about already, but does the crisis reinforce the prioritization of nationalistic agendas? Well, Max, I'll try to give you a concise answer, which is not my thing. But, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And in a memo a couple of weeks ago, I gave you the bull case and I gave you the bear case, the optimist and the pessimist. I don't know which one's going to be. We, ha we all have to choose between it. There is no intellectual basis between choosing the, between the optimistic case and the pessimistic case. But we largely reflect our, our biases I consider myself a professional warrior, so I tend to lean toward the pessimistic case more than the optimistic case. I think that the current level of, of stock prices embodies the optimistic case. And if the future turns out to be as the optimists hope, that'll be fine. But if the future turns out to be as the pessimists fear, then the current prices will turn out to be too high, and I do think we will have a, a correction. Um, and, um, so the interesting thing is that if you look at the markets, uh, stocks are almost, they're probably within 15% of their all time high, uh, which strikes me as too high given the uncertainty, uh, credit is not. And, um, and what we call structured credit, uh, which is to say leveraged investment entities, uh, are very far 
from expecting an optimistic case. So different cases, different uh, levels of bargain on offer. Howard, many, many thanks for taking the time to join us today. As ever, it's been an incredibly insightful experience and I look forward to meeting again sometime soon. Well, Max, thank you very much for having me today. Uh, you've, you've conducted what I found to be an interesting discussion. And I particularly want to thank Investec uh, for including me in this series and including Oaktree in its, uh, in its uh, trusted team. So thank you very much. And I want to wish you, yours, and everybody who's on the call a, a uh, good health uh, and good safety and uh, good innings. Thank you. Bye-bye. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorized financial services provider and member of the JSC.